Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. On today's DBSA Real Recovery Podcast, we're joined by Dr. Mitch Gallant, who, along with his wife and co-author, Susan Gallant, wrote What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed. Thanks for being with us today, Mitch. Yeah, it's great to have uh, the opportunity to talk to you all. I'll start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about the book. Uh, who do you think this book is for, and who do you think will benefit most from it? Well, I think it, the, the book is really for family members, caregivers, and friends, and creates a common language to understand the experience of depression from the perspective of patients. And, and over the years, you know, Liz, we, we've had feedback from our readers uh, in both letters and emails that, that, that said that what really helps our book is that, is that um, it helps the loved one be able to explain better what they are experiencing. So the patients are saying that to us, that, that, that it's like a book that even patients give to their loved ones to say, that your interest in psychology and depression stems from your experiences with your mother who yeah. also battled depression. Right. And I was wondering, because many loved ones, they choose to keep their experiences private, and I was just wondering yeah. why you chose to write a book. Well, that's, that's a great, great question, truthfully. It's, it's, a, uh, it, it's, a, it's a multifaceted answer. First is, it's, it, you know, I've been trained and done a lot of work with people with cancer through an organization called the Wellness Community. And there's a huge amount of support groups really very similar to, to what you all are providing. And, uh, and part of that model is that is sharing our experiences as a way of being helpful as if we're real people. And I, I couldn't imagine writing a book that would be so clinical and removed without really, you know, providing that uh, that true experience, that background of having, if you will, walked in those shoes. And truthfully, it really had a profound impact on my life. Obviously, here I am, uh, uh, um, you know, working in the field for really over 30 years, and uh, my mom's experience truly impacted, uh, I think, both uh, my professional life, but, but, you know, at a personal level, I think I shared some story in particular in, in the book about really the impact on loved ones, me, in school while my mom was being depressed and how profoundly it impacted my ability to actually do homework, relate to friends, and, uh, and, and succeed. I am very glad, actually, that you chose to write this in a less clinical style because I found the book very informative and easy to understand, especially the list of myths you talk about in the first yeah. chapter. So I wanted to go through that and ask you what you think the major misconceptions family members have about loved ones' depression. Yes, that's, that's a great, great question. So uh, maybe we can just walk through it a, a little bit. Well, the, the first myth from my perspective or, or, or the, the hitch that occurs is for, for loved ones or in, in caregivers is that well, with enough willpower, right, anyone can overcome depression. Like it's really about will alone. Or somehow it's all in his or her head. That's another one. Uh, and that there's this huge stigma. It's something to be ashamed of. 
when we really think about it, it's it's uh, and and the way the the research has been characterizing it, really, it's it's that it's uh, really in many ways no different than than uh, diabetes, and you wouldn't withhold insulin for a diabetic, and and that somehow you can't be productive if you are depressed, and, and many 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 millions of people who are depressed are still functioning at work all the time whether they're functioning at optimum levels or not or deriving as much satisfaction as they could at work, they're still at work. The mm-hmm. vast majority are, are functioning. The other kind of myth or, or barrier, misconception, is that, that somehow therapy, psychotherapy, doesn't work. Well, the, the, the research is that psychotherapy, in particular cognitive behavioral therapy, it is highly effective in 70% of the cases. And that those other 30% can can really be helped with long-term targeted treatment that may combine both the talk therapy with psychopharmacology or medication. So there's tremendous hope if we overcome some of these barriers. Um, there's another myth, of course, that, that somehow medications are addictive and create this dependency. But really, depression is a psychosocial illness and it's complicated it's not any one thing and I suppose the other myth that folks really are challenged by is that uh, it's like one size fits all depression is the same for everyone well it's not it's very different and it's very unique to each person and I suppose the, the one that, that lurks in the background is, is that somehow what we're calling self-medication or substance abuse and depression are not related because uh, um, folks, folks who are depressed often use alcohol or other uh, other medications to self-medicate. So those are some of them. I, maybe you want to jump in on any of them that, that drew you in, but I thought it would be just helpful to outline them for folks and help them see that there's a whole range of experiences with this. Well, I really thought that all of the myths you mentioned um, were particularly uh, useful to share with my family members, but I was wondering in particular if you want to talk a little bit more about uh, what you mean when you talk about substance abuse and that being uh, connected with depression sometimes. You know, uh, there's about a 40% relationship between, you know, other illnesses and depression. So some folks are suffering from physical pain, other types of illness, as I mentioned, like diabetes or cancer or other kinds of, uh, of uh, coexisting illnesses. And folks are struggling to treat. Which are they going to treat? Is it is it the you know depression with cancer or cancer with depression, for example, or you know, diabetes with depression or depression with diabetes. And so folks find themselves self-medicating as a way, because of the stigma, really, Liz, the stigma as a huge barrier to folks being able to, to you know, ask for help, seek out help, and, and uh, feel comfortable within the family receiving help. Somehow, you know, even in, in I, I talk about one particular um, patient in, 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 the, in the book where he was a, a quick responder to the medication and um, really had weaned himself from marijuana use. And the family really 
inadvertently put on the person with depression. What I mean by inadvertently, it's it's the family and friends mean well. This is not a matter of that thinking purposely that they're trying to hurt, but because there's not clarity around information and what actually is the course of depression, there's an inclination to want a quick answer. Just do this. And it really is challenging in that regard. I can really imagine how frustrating it would be to have some of those unintentioned messages coming my way. But I also wanted to ask you, what are some of the messages or some of the things you can say that really do help a loved one? Yeah, that's that's really a a great question. I I, I think the the answer really to that one requires a a little bit more of a, I don't know if the word is set up, so sort of background. Because the the way we've been thinking about this um, is that really for the person who's depressed, the, the, the number one element that they're struggling with is the terror, really the fear, that they're going to be abandoned in their darkest hour. And so the way we begin to talk about that, at least in, in our book or the way I've worked with families before, is that, that we can really help loved ones say something like, words like, we'll get through this together. I know that you're alone and it doesn't appear to be light at the end of the trouble, light at the end of the tunnel, but we'll get through this together is both comforting and reassuring if you can see the messaging around that. It's the idea of being able to endure and that we're, we're in this together. And, and really it combines with the kind of things that we think about, about you know, things not to say, really. Uh, and uh, I can give you some examples of that, if that would be helpful for you and, and the listeners. I think that would definitely be helpful. And I also wanted to add that it sounds like uh, this isn't just applicable to depression. This is really applicable to any illness and any mental illness, that um, yeah. this is something you, you want to hear or maybe you don't want to hear from your family members. So, yes, please, do share that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, Liz, is that, you know, there's a whole layer of this experience of somehow being shunned because it is not a physical illness and rather being a mental illness. And that experience of that terror being abandoned is so overwhelming that it really impacts the ability for the loved one with depression to get better. But it's also challenging for the caregiver.
So it's the idea that uh, those emotions are, uh, are immediate, but also transitory, and that we can ride the storm together. And I hope I've conveyed it, the tone, but also that there's language that actually is useful, comforting. Yes, definitely. And loving, as a matter of fact, too. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's really the challenge. You know, I know we're doing this as a, as a podcast, and, and, you know, facial expressions and intonation and just the act of nodding, you know, quietly being available to hear the other person's pain or suffering without reacting is incredibly supportive. Because often loved ones want to do everything, and sometimes doing less is doing more. And I can also imagine that if you're able to go through this with your spouse and come out on the other side, or come out in some uh, some place that's a a place where you feel like you're in recovery, that could be really strengthening for your relationship. Right, and I, I think that that our idea of the strength and ally, uh, which is kind of the organizing principle of the book, and other folks who've read the book and commented upon it really take that as sometimes one of their mantras about being a strength and ally, which we talk about as, you know, really arming yourself with information about the illness, really, and that's critical, combining it with self-care. So those two anchor points become a way of approaching this that in combination with support that you might receive from a psychologist or a psychotherapist, really, and a psychopharmacologist together helps you see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and one of the things that we really focus on in, in the work we've been doing is helping the loved one who is depressed, that's the caregiver, helping the loved one who is depressed by seeing the micro changes that are occurring over time. When someone is depressed, there tends to be a sort of black and white thinking, all or nothing, I'm, you know, ruminating about myself not getting better, and, and there's this sort of futurizing. And, the, you know, the caregivers, the strength and ally can actually point out micro-changes, little ways that, that things are getting better. For example, you know, hearing your loved one, you know, whistle a tune, just spontaneously, catching them smile, and reporting that back. It's not the big things. It's helping the, the loved one who is depressed see the little things. That probably would also help people stick with it, too, once yeah. you start on the road to treatment. And one of the questions that I, I hear a lot from family members is, yeah. what do I do um, to help a loved one seek treatment? How can I encourage them to do that? Or once they're on the road to recovery and they're in treatment, how do I help them stay with it? Well, two, those are two terrific and, and, and big questions. So let's take the first one first. So say the first one first, and then we'll go through them again, because they're really important. So the first one is, um, just in general, how do you encourage a loved one to seek treatment? So uh, the, the way we've been thinking about this uh, is that really depression is a family illness. It affects everyone. And so the approach isn't about getting the loved one who is depressed to, to treatment. It's how can we approach this together? And when someone's depressed, that level of support and 
experience rather than a, you know, identified patient experience is, is I think, an, a way of organizing the approach of helping someone get help. And I imagine that would also be really uh, encouraging to somebody knowing that if they are working on getting better not just for themselves but for their family members as well. Exactly. And, and I, I should say this because, you know, this is, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners experience this, it's a fine balance between encouraging treatment and then being overly intrusive, that line between support and scrutiny. And finding that balance is really one of the features of, of getting support through therapy or the support through, a, you know, a, 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 some sort of psychologist, actually. That, that's a fine line because uh, when someone's depressed, you want to get them motivated or activated. But on the other hand, that they have to feel like they can do it themselves. And I think that line is best help when, when you're getting a, an objective third person who has some familiarity about where the road is going and where the light at the end of the tunnel will exist. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is a really important distinction to make, that there is um, support and then there's also intrusiveness. So it's, it's good that you pointed that out. And especially as people maintain their treatment and they're really achieving recovery, uh, that seems like something to, to keep in mind as well. Yeah, yeah. And I really appreciate you using the word recovery. And, and I know there's a recovery movement, but in, with depression, the way the treatments are going is we're seeking recovery. We're really seeking the goal is cure. And, and the process takes us uh, along a multifaceted road that includes the family. This is not, it's, this is a we experience. And folks that are going through this, family members, it's about managing some of these expectations, that it's about the other person getting better rather than how we are in this together. And that's a burden. That, that, that's not easy. Believe me, you know, as you probably well know, the ups and downs of this is so challenging to families because it's not just a rational problem. Oh, if you would only get up in the morning and exercise, so only if you would, you know, uh, uh, whatever it might be, go to work on time, then you'd be happier. Well, that's the rational side, but it's an emotional problem too. And we talk a lot about that as the deeper layer of, of, of the therapy work and, the, and, and really the, the language we've been using is depression as thought. And the thoughts them, themselves, the critical thoughts, become a huge barrier that leads to this sense of immobility and inertia. So the value of psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy in particular, uh, is that it helps manage some of those thoughts. And, and families need to really understand that process as often two steps forward, one step back. Right. You know, this is something that um, I also wanted to bring up with you, and, and we touched on it a little bit, but there are some real challenges to being a family member uh, of someone with depression. And we talked a little bit about maintaining self-care. That's a challenge. And then also being there as supportive but not intrusive. But what are some of the other challenges that you see face family members? Well, there's a financial burden. We, we did a 
time that they have to be with their friends and have family outings, maintaining the routines that make them happy. Well, and that can be difficult for the patient as well because one of the problems with depression is is social isolation. And so if your spouse or your loved one um, is really reinforcing that by giving up their own social interaction, that would be very difficult. Absolutely. So it becomes a downward spiral. And, and so, you know, the things that we talk about as being a strength and ally, I think I've mentioned as well, is the idea of, you know, getting support for yourself. I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, you, know, you know, the depression, bipolar, you know, organization that you've been involved with in the alliance is a perfect opportunity. I know that you all are doing support groups. Well, the support groups for caregivers are incredibly helpful, especially online, because it's like it's very challenging for them to leave home, go to a group, come back, and, and deal with their all their lives. Whereas an online support group allows them to to be able to receive and give support, actually, in, in the comfort of their own home or at work or at a library, and and uh, the you know it, it, it minimizes the challenges of getting up and out. Um, I think we talked about this, and I, it can't be emphasized more to update yourself on the latest research. There's it's easy to get updates on your website for sure, and and, and actually the NIH is often coming out with alerts on new treatments and new protocols, and I think that's an encouraging way to realize that there's great research going on out there, even for resistant depressions, and I think that information helps normalize or at least regulate that sort of expectations about getting help. I think sometimes it's useful to keep a journal, just to find a way of expressing your emotions and trying to maintain your friendships if you can, that that's... uh, Going to church, being you know, being in outings that mean are meaningful to you, especially close family and friends, preserving routines. If there's something comforting about, even if it's cleaning your house that you do each week, uh, pulling weeds, uh, there's ways that that just kind of regulates. I know as a child, one of the things that I did was when my mom was particularly depressed, I would enjoy just sitting on a public bus bench and just watching traffic go by. Liz, realizing and kind of, you know, when the light would change, I would kind of look into the car window and think, wow, people are having other lives or they're bustling along. And and it was comforting to me as a, as a routine to just find some space or distance or objectivity. And uh, um, I, I think that's really useful for, for, for folks, uh, continuing hobbies. And, and just remember that life goes on. There's that, that's the example that I have, I think, about being on the bench and the bus bench is that things are going on all around you and we get very internally focused and that's incredibly challenging. And I suppose another one is, you know, I, I, I simplify it as just breathing, just letting go for a moment, giving yourself a, a chance to take a, take a moment and, and realize that, that, uh, that there's opportunities to just appreciate um, you know, I suppose all that you're doing, because uh, it often feels endless, and and there may be ways that just highlighting the silver lining, things that you can actually feel good about in the way you've interacted. Nothing, of course, is perfect, and we we like to think of it as maybe successive approximation that that we're getting closer and closer to a goal. 
but we're never going to be perfect about this. We're human. We react. We get angry. We get upset. We're just trying to soften the landing by having all these levels of support or information. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Excuse me? I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, in particular, remembering that life goes on and also taking a deep breath. As you said it, I took a, a, a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, it, because there's a lot of emotional regulation. I mean, if you, you learn this from the yoga meditation literature that, that the that form of breathing actually it changes brain waves. You know, that sort of gentle in and out breathing through your nose in particular actually has physiological impact providing, you know, if you will, um, oxygen to cells and removes toxins at the cell level and the, and the organ level, but it also, that sort of gentle breathing uh, creates uh, very, across very sensitive uh, tissue and nerves endings in the back of your palate, helps actually chain brain wave patterns and leads to just lowered anxiety. And if you can maintain some of that relaxation, support has the same function. Being able to express your emotions, you know, lowers your anxiety and helps to regulate your own distress. So there's a, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it's ways that these tools actually help provide support for you. But they're also tools that your loved one who's depressed can use. And, and that's a whole other level. But really the focus of our book is helping the loved one who's a, who's a, the caregiver, you know, who's in the trenches, be as much support as possible. It really is amazing how many wellness tools the loved one and the person living with depression can share. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned a little bit in your book, you talk about psychotherapy and drug therapy, and we were talking about yoga and uh deep breathing, these are all really, uh, and support, of course, peer support is very important. These are all other ways of working with depression and working with mental illness, and I was wondering if there are any other alternatives um, or treatments that you can add to therapy and to medication and support that you found has been helpful both for family members and for those living with a mental illness. Well, I mean, just a basic, you know, kind of some of the literature on uh, uh, seasonal affective disorder. Sometimes if you're living in the East or other places, uh, giving yourself more light. You know, the idea of going to Florida, and we all can't do that if we're living on the East Coast, but uh, I'm based in California, so light's kind of a... Not, not much of an act. There's days that hardly any days that aren't a lot of light. But folks in the East Coast, in particular, or other areas in the Midwest, you, you know, being able to have some sort of form of light, general natural light, is really, really meaningful. Um, I, I think that uh, we really also often talk about exercise, and, and there's this fine line between you know. Uh, you know, someone who's depressed is immobilized too, but getting them to just sharing in a walk. And, and I, I probably should have corrected myself getting them. It's not, that's really not the right language. But the right language is, you know, all of us together, you know, are enhanced by certain activities. And having a meal together is a, is a, is a treatment. Sharing foods we like, sharing a TV program we like, these are microwaves that particularly are helpful. Exercise, sharing, walking together is an incredibly useful way of, of connecting. Uh, we think about um, actually also regulating sleep. The, 
level of importance of, of you know, in the in the process for some folks who are depressed, the circadian rhythm, the, the sort of biological clock gets deregulated. And so creating regular sleep patterns actually helps neurobiologically. So those would be some of them as well as, you know, there's diet elements as well. Um, uh, complex carbohydrates, fiber, fruits and vegetables all help in, in the production of many, many um, you know, antioxidants that actually act as a as a uh, you know calming agent. Those are the ones that I think of offhand, and and you know one of the it would be great to to have feedback from from your listeners about the things that they do that actually helps them you know provide some sort of comfort in all of those situations because it's not one size fits all as we've been trying to say that that they're you know one of the silver lining things that, that I've learned from so many of my patients and, and their families is things that they came up with that were creative scrabble mm-hmm. you know I mean checkers uh, it's, it's you know that idea of pulling weeds but pulling weeds but it's the idea of some sort of shared experience that's what we're talking about as as actually like it's a treatment these shared experiences and if we think about it as treatment that's really helpful for folks and it is great to think about how the little things really do make an impact because i think when especially when a when a family member is diagnosed with a major mental illness it can just seem so overwhelming and so knowing that that these little micro steps, these little these little things, that they can give us hope as well. And yeah, it's always yeah. important to, it's yeah. really always important to maintain yeah. a sense of hope. You, you know, when we're talking about these micro steps, some, you know, the, the meditation process is one thing, but you know, prayer is actually a form of meditation. Being able to sing a hymn together, listening to music, you know, movement. And so, you know, I think that, that, there's ways that, that we live our lives every day that we find comfort in. I think we're asking folks to think about them as a treatment for depression no different than medication. For especially those depression as a thought. And thinking about uh, having hope and working with little steps, I just was hoping that we could end with yeah. any stories of triumph that you have to share. Yeah, yeah. There is triumph. Oh, yeah. The, the, you know... The, the the chapter there's a couple of chapters about you know I I, I, I like to think about this in in, in both a you know a, 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 a kind of soulful way but also uh, in a practical way you know the the idea that there's you know, there's a big difference between optimism and hope optimism is that the idea that everything's going to turn out for the best. Well, hope is really quite different because hope is about, starts with first a, a very realistic assessment of the situation. But with hope, there is the decision that you will endure, that you will go forward no matter what. And, and there's been some confusion around that distinction about the idea that we're going to get through this together. And, and there's some great, great stories that, that uh, you know, really I, I cherish and I think uh, and probably your listeners have them as well but, but in, in particular I, I think about um, 
you know, a, a, a patient who who um, was had incredible musical talent, you know, and the barrier uh, for him was that he he couldn't practice. You know, so there's this inherent talent, and that somehow with all that talent it wasn't being realized. And so there was a family history of depression, and it seemed like the form of depression was blocking that ability to practice. And the, the function of therapy with the family was to creatively find ways of not thinking about it as practice, but as treating depression and mobilizing about the idea that playing the instrument, the violin in this case, was actually uh, a form of medication. And so we found a way to sidestep the idea of practicing as a drudgery or routine or hooking it up to failure, but just increasing a dosage of medication. And that became both a mantra and a a shared experience in the family that they could all be a part of it and they all found ways that playing music or listening to music music appreciation became the core and you know I, I do receive uh, letters or emails about, about uh, folks and, and uh, I, maybe I just read one of those to you I would like that you know and, and because you know uh, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it, they all turn out that way, but it's, it's comforting to know that, that a book can be useful to others, but also that a way of approaching the illness is helpful. And so this, this came from uh, just a little while ago. Uh, his name is uh, Tom. And he said, I recently finished reading What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed. I wanted to thank you for your fine work. I found it to be exceptionally insightful and helpful, and, I'm, and I am faced with dealing with two depresses in my home. And your book gave me some great tips along with some just plain understanding how difficult the situations can be. And I think that's like normalizing expectations. I discovered my wife's depression over 20 years ago while we were dating, and it's been a struggle ever since since he's been really very resistant to the various treatments she continues to seek help and then just about two years ago we discovered that our own 17 year old son is depressed and obviously Tim in this situation is getting and gathering information in these two short years he has gone from a great student and a very active boy with lots of friends and energy to almost a recluse he stopped attending school in December he was much too, it was much too much for him to handle. So we're now getting and dealing with getting him the proper treatment, a combination of drugs and finally talk therapy. He wouldn't go for counseling until recently, but we're optimistic thus far. So while my plate is full, your book has helped. I almost feel that I need to cycle through reading again just to keep inspired. Again, thanks for your book. I'm sure I'm not the first person who's been helped by it over the years. And so I, I hope it's not so much self-serving as the idea that we as loved ones who are struggling with someone who is depressed need support for ourselves. That there is a need to connect meaningfully. And that 
not just a one-shot deal that there's a need to return to it often. And uh, so I, I find some sort of uh, maybe comfort in the idea that folks may be helped. Thank you for that, Mitch. I, I have to say that um, reading your book and knowing a little bit more about how you've spent your life, that you really do give a lot of yourself to helping others. And so I thank you for that. And um, I'm glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for making this happen, Liz. It's, it's fun to do it. This has been a DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. Thank you for listening. been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.